Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand as usual and it is perfect, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Huge monster Monday. So if you're on the mentorship list, you're going to get an email and chances are you've already gotten it if you're watching this that Mike Robertson and I are doing a Q&A at 3 p.m. for uh, the people that are on the iFastU list. So you're gonna get notified for that. Um, very exciting, this is, this is at no charge to you for today. And then um, it's gonna be 100 people max, so it's gonna be first come, first serve, so hopefully we'll see you there for that. 3 p.m. Eastern time, me and my buddy Mike Robertson. Okay, so we got a bunch of Q&A backups to get through, so we're gonna knock a couple out this morning if it's okay by you. First one comes from Austin. Austin says, I have a question about a video you posted a couple months ago on improving hip internal rotation with the toe touch video. You mentioned that using dorsiflexion to achieve sacral nutation uh, and maintain mid to max propulsion. <clears throat> you also mentioned plantar flexion. Putting the individual in an early propulsive phase, can you talk me through how dorsiflexion and plantar flexion influences sacral position? Absolutely. So I'm gonna bring in a special guest. This is my classic Air Jordan that I got from uh, my good, Good buddy Jim Ferris. Um, got him in the shield colors, as everybody should. Anyway, so we're going to use this as a representation of the foot as it moves through uh, the gait cycle. And so when we look at the, the foot in its, in its approach position, it's going to land in a supinated position heel first. So first heel contact is going to be lateral. So I've got a supinated foot position, which is actually external rotation. So external rotation is inhalation expansion, which puts the sacrum in a counter nutated position just prior to ground contact. As I make contact, I have to start propelling, otherwise I'd collapse into the ground. But this is early propulsion. So now as the foot comes to flat, the body is still behind the foot. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a leg for a sec okay so as I land I hit the heel I go into plantar flexion but the body is still back and behind so this is counter mutation this is inhalation this is ER as I move towards pronation okay so I'm bringing the medial heel into contact with the ground so I can pronate that's where I'm going to start to reach my mid and max propulsive strategies okay so as I hit the ground and I come over top of the foot and as the body comes over the foot, I have to create a, a stable pelvic orientation above the foot. So now let's grab the pelvis, and now we can actually see. So as I land, I'm here. As I'm stepping over, I bring the hip towards zero degrees of, of what we would call hip extension. But this is where I'm going to get a concentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm. And so that's going to create the nutated position of the sacrum. So now I have pronation down below. I've got internal rotation at the hip. I've got a concentric pelvic diaphragm and I got a nutated sacrum. So that's how we can relate the plantar flexion and, and dorsiflexion to the sacral position. So when I'm plantar flexed, which is actually supination, ER, inhalation, I'm going to be counter nutated. As I'm pronated, I'm going to be IR'd, concentric pelvic diaphragm, nutation of the sacrum. So hopefully that will answer your question, Austin. And if it doesn't, please ask me another one. Okay, question number two from Matt. And Matt asks, I know you have to work on knee valgus in athletes, and to what degree is it not something to worry about because it potentially helps produce power? I was wondering where you could find more info to read about it. I'm not sure that you're going to read a whole lot about 
um, using the, a valgus, if you will, um, to, as far as like when it's beneficial, how much to use and, and, and how you're going to make that, that judgment as to whether you're being effective with it. But let's just talk through what knee valgus really is because it doesn't really exist. There is no frontal plane. Um, frontal plane is a visual representation for you and I to have a discussion. What the reality is, is what we're looking at. I'm going to bring this up close. What we're looking at with a knee valgus is actually a rotation in the knee, right? So, so what we have is we have a femur and a, and a tibia that are in, in relative rotation. So this would be defined by the tibia under most circumstances would be tibiofemoral external rotation. And so what we have is an internally rotated femur on top of the tibia. And what that does is that produces what people will typically identify as, as that it, it has the appearance of a frontal plane position of, of knee valgus. Now, under certain circumstances, that's going to be very, very useful. So you are absolutely correct that when we are producing power, when we are at our maximum propulsion, we're probably going to be a, approximating that position to some degree because it is a, 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 an element of propulsion. However, there's people that walk around like that because of their physical structures and because of their idiosyncratic physics and the way that they deal with gravity, they actually live in that position. And so what happens is that they'll eventually give up the, the opposing rotation. So we have tibiofemoral ER, we have tibiofemoral IR. And what we want to make sure is that our athletes have access to both of those because that would represent our ability to, to move through a full excursion of knee range of motion. So as you would, uh, perform, say, the traditional knee extension activity, you'll get tibiofemoral ER. As you perform the traditional knee flexion, you would get tibiofemoral IR. And so to have full knee excursion, we have to have those rotations available to us. And so, um, Matt, what I would say is, is, is you, you want to make sure that you can identify whether your athlete has given up one of those, those elements of, of tibiofemoral rotation. That would be something I would say that would put you at risk because it does compromise the full excursion of knee range of motion. Um, that would be my first, first priority. Secondly is, once again, is as they move through their maximum propulsive phase, are they capturing this knee position and then can they reverse it as they push out of it? So at, at early and late propulsive phases, I want to recapture the, the tibiofemoral position uh, of ER, and as I move through that, that max propulsive phase, I want to make sure I got tibiofemoral IR um, available to me. So once again, um, hopefully that's helpful. Um, if it's not, then again, please ask another question. You guys have a terrific Monday, and uh, we will talk later this week. See ya. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neuro coffee in hand, and it is perfect. Okay. So, got another big day today. Very excited. Um, lots of things to do. The model is evolving. So, with this extra time, um, I've had time to talk to some some good people, some creative thinkers that have that have helped drive me a little bit harder in regards to uh, evolving the model. So, we've been working on some cool stuff. Um, you guys will obviously benefit from that at some point in time as will the people that will attend the intensive if we ever get back to doing those thingies. All right. So anyway, oh, uh, happy birthday to my sister, Stacy. It is, I have no idea how old you are. Let me think. Uh, 53, 55, 56? Are you 56? 
Holy cow. Okay, yeah, so mom's birthday was yesterday, Stacy's birthday today, and it's tax day. That's how you always remember Stacy's birthday because, um, you know, um, she was born and then you had to pay taxes. I don't know if there's a relationship there. We'll, we'll, we'll just let that play itself out. Um, so I got some questions. Obviously, from the, from the q and I'm trying to clean up the backup here. And this one comes from uh, my buddy Edward from, from Germany. Um, he, he wrote some really cool stuff about uh, how we influence breathing and how some of it is actually even meditative, which I thought was really, really cool. But, um, but the thing that, that he asked uh, um, in the Q&A is basically, how do you distinguish between genetically determined structure of being a narrow versus a wide? And a body that starts, for example, as a wide, does a ton of compressive hardcore weight work and, and results in a narrow with excessive external oblique and that has to deal with two or three layers of compensatory strategies overwhelming the body. Well, first and foremost, you're never going to turn a wide into a narrow or a narrow into a wide. Okay, what we're going to see are compressive strategies that may make things look a little bit differently, but the genetically predetermined structure is always going to be there. Think about this for a second. If I wanted to turn a narrow into a wide, I would have to I would have to smash them down. I would have to take away their height to change the helical angles. And so, so we're not actually doing that. What we're doing is we're probably bending a few things to make it look a little bit differently. So let me give you a for instance. Um, people uh, often will say that they had a narrow that, that is now a wide. The reality is it's just a it's just a shape change um, because of the superficial uh, musculature like rectus abdominis. And, and, and pecs um, behaving as such that they compress the axial skeleton. I can take a, a narrow, so when you lay your hands on, on a, a narrow, your, your hands might be in that shape right there, but if they do a lot of uh, compressive strength work, it'll start to square off in the front like that, but they'll still be a narrow. But because they're getting compressed flat, it will seem like the ISA is actually wider and it's not. So you still treat those people like a narrow. Um, it would be really, really difficult to take a wide individual and turn them into a narrow uh, to begin with once again because you can't change the helical angles, but because other than the external oblique, there is nothing on the on the sides of the body that are squeezers uh, because we really don't have that plane um, to play in as, as humans. Um, point being though, because we're dealing with superficial strategies here, Ed, the thing you got to do is you got to get the ISA to move. So, so your your comment at the end of your of your question is yes, you have to get the ISA to move. But I will offer you this: the deeper that people go into these compensatory strategies, the more help they're going to need. So, chances are you're going to have to lay hands on them. You're going to have to do some manual therapies to get the rib cage to move, because of the the compensatory strategies being exhale based. They are concentric orientation, and so you have to teach one side of the body to eccentrically orient as you compress the other. So you're actually gonna to have to increase the compressive strategy on one side of the body manually so they can eccentrically orient on the opposing side. Um, so start there, get your manual therapist. If you're, a, if you're a trainer or a coach in the gym, this is where um, laying people over pads over, over on, their, on their side to create a compressive strategy on one side and expand the other is where you're gonna be playing. Um, you can also use some some like a side bridge or side planking type activities with some active motion as they're breathing so you're creating compression expansion compression expansion so this is where some some dynamic stuff in the gym gets really really interesting um, because what what you're trying to do 
is restore sort of like that worm-like quality uh, to, to, the, to the thorax so it can bend and turn and twist. And so, so doing static holds under these circumstances is not necessarily the best choice. So people that are trying to lock the, the rib cage and the abdomen into a place thinking that, oh, more stability is better, this is the exact wrong strategy under those circumstances. We want the rib cage to move. We want the spine to move. We want the pelvis to move. We always want to have that mobility available to us. So constantly training these, these anti-positions of anti-rotation, anti-bend, um, not always a good strategy, especially when you've already got somebody that's very, very rigid. All right, number two from Brian. And Brian says, if someone exhibits a narrow ISA with excessive lumbar lidosis and limited hip ER, would a good strategy to improve the hip ER measures be to work on activities to improve the lower posterior thorax expansion to reduce the, the, the lordosis, which is driving the anterior pelvis orientation? Brian, you are dead on, buddy. Okay, but, but let's talk about this a little bit because what we want to do is we want to make sure that, that we are are reorienting the pelvis on the correct axis. So let me grab the pelvis real quick. So if we're talking about a narrow, um, we're, so we're, we're going to use the IPA here as the representation. So this is somebody that does not have full excursion of breathing, so they don't have full inhalation exhalation because they've lost lost hip motion, right? So I'm going to see a, a narrowing of this of this IPA. Well, what this does, it's going to retrovert the, the acetabulum. So typically what under these circumstances, what I should have is more ER, but your guy has lost, uh, lost ER. And so what that means is that we've got this anterior orientation of the pelvis. Now the question mark is, is it straightforward? So if I have a bite, if I have a symmetrical bilateral loss of ER, then you can pretty much be sure that, that I have a, almost a straightforward orientation. Um, typically, with a, with a narrow, you're not going to see a lumbar lordosis because I, I have sacral countermutation, and that's going to reduce the, the appearance of the lordosis in the lumbar spine. Chances are, I'm, so I'm, I'm taking a wild guess here, Brian, that if you're seeing a lordosis, that you're actually seeing a turn. And so, so what you got is a narrow with an anterior orientation and a, and a turn. And so what's going to happen is we're going to see this ischial tuberosity getting closer and closer to the femur. So what you're going to end up with is, chances are if you've lost ER by traditional measures at, with the hip at, at 90 degrees of, of hip flexion, you're probably also losing abduction at the same time. Then you know you're on an oblique axis there. And so you're going to have to push back on, on an oblique. So instead of trying to bring the pelvis straight back this way, you're actually going to push from the right and go back to the left. So you're going to push back on that oblique axis because chances are you lost more ER on the left than you did on the right. Okay. So, so again, I'm taking a little bit of a leap there based on the information that you gave me, but I'll just put that on the floor for now. Um, but but uh, if if I'm if I'm wrong about that, then please get back to me um, through the through the askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we will clarify um, what those needs actually are. So thank you for that, Brian. Okay, I got a question from Matt, and Matt says Matt made reference to a, a previous video. Uh, saw your recent tricep pushdown video. I noticed that you say push through the pinky side of your hands. I was wondering why this is and, and how pressing different parts of your hand can have different influences on the rest of the body. Is it similar to pressing through different aspects of your foot? Absolutely. So Matt, you are, you are on point here. So um, if, we, if we look at the, the, the heel of the hand here, when we look at the pinky side, so this is like, this would be like uh, pisiform 
um, general vicinity or the, the uh, hypothenar eminence, if you will. So when I apply pressure there, that promotes an external rotation from, from the, the hand and wrist towards the shoulder, which would give me posterior expansion or dorsal rostral expansion. So if that's my goal, if I'm trying to maintain expansion of that area, I want to maintain pressure there because the minute that I put pressure through the, the thenar side of the, of the heel of the hand or the thumb side of the heel of the hand, I am working on an exhalation strategy, which will get me anterior expansion. So let me give you an example of when this typically shows up. You're probably already doing this and not even recognizing it as you do a push-up. So if I'm at the very, very top of the push-up, I tend to put weight through the, the, the hypothenar aspect of the heel of the hand, right? And then as I am in the lowest part of the push-up and I'm about ready to create my propulsive phase, I'm actually going to pronate into the ground. So I'm pressing the thumb side of the heel of the hand into the ground to push myself back up. So so we have this transition from inhale to exhale through the push-up. So now we have a potential solution for your clients that are having trouble with push-ups. So the people that cannot get depth, the people that can't get depth in their push-ups cannot capture this propulsive strategy um, at the bottom, which is why they can't produce enough force. So they never access that range of motion through the push-up. So, so now you can think about, okay, that's one of the reasons why you elevate these people is so they can learn to capture these different positions of inhalation and exhalation so they can manage the pressures that allow them to produce force. So Matt, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. Um, I, I appreciate everybody with the Q&A. So ask at gmail.com. So keep the questions coming. Have an outstanding Wednesday. I'm going to go finish off my neural coffee. And then um, we'll, we'll see you um, all over social media today. So I'll see you guys later. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and... It is perfect as usual. Okay, so today's a very exciting day. Today is April 14th as I sit here and speak, which makes it Mama Hartman's 87th birthday. So happy birthday to mom, very exciting. Mom is uh, still kicking some, some butt here. She lives independently, she drives, she exercises a couple times a week. So I just saw her the other day um, to uh, actually pick up my mask, which seems to be the the behavior that we have all adopted in public to protect ourselves um, when we do need to go out. Otherwise, stay home and enjoy your social distancing for now. Anyway, so we got some Q&As to address. Got a bunch of them that are backed up, so let's let's kill a couple today. Um, first one comes from Zhang. It's in, Zhang says, uh, can you clarify the terminology describing the different regions of the posterior rib cage? Is the posterior rib cage divided into three areas? Uh, posterior lower, dorsal rostral, and upper dorsal rostral. And then he wants to know what shoulder test would identify the location of compression at the posterior ribcage. So I'm going to bring in my little skeleton guy. And, and what we can do is we can kind of look at this thorax um, based on some constraints and then some, some behaviors. And then over time, what we can do is if we, if we identify areas of compression and expansion, we can associate changes in, in shoulder measures that are associated with where this thorax is compressed or expanded. And so if, if we, can, we can simplify this to a degree, 
we can look at uh, the, the division of the of the thorax from the scapula down. So if we look at the inferior angle of the scapula at about T7 or so, anything below that will expand and it's going to provide us uh, a an element of motion in the shoulder um, that is typically going to be in the early stages of shoulder flexion. So if this area was compressed, what I would see is an early limitation in shoulder flexion. So typically what that's going to be is going to show up as a shoulder flexion measure below 90 degrees. Um, this area is also going to be associated with, with the, the influence of the, the strategy at the ISA. So if I get a wide ISA, this is area is typically going to be expanded. And so I will have access to that lower measure of, of shoulder flexion. As I go up, now I have the scapula and the associated uh, spinoscapular muscles as, as a constraint here. And so if, if that would be compressed, um, I would look at a measure that is farther uh, through the, the level of elevation of the upper extremity. And so this would be more associated with a limitation in horizontal abduction. And anything above the, the T4 level, um, I would associate with, with end range shoulder flexion. And this is just to do with the shape change of the th thorax, how it positions the scapula, and then what motions would be available at the shoulder. So this is something that you can make a comparison with over time to, to confirm or deny this. The nice thing about this is that we also have these constraints on the front. So again, I have the ISA that's associated with this lower posterior aspect, but I also have the sternum and the manubrium, um, which provides some constraints that are also associated with these, these posterior measures. Um, so as I, as I draw my horizontals through the thorax, I have an association anteriorly as well. So at the level of this, this scapula, as I go forward, of course, I've got the ISA. As I go up to the spine of the scapula, that is areas associated with the synchondrosis between the manubrium and the sternum. So the angle of Lewis, depending on your, on your resources. So there's actually a potential to bend the sternum at this level. So I can actually get a down pump handle and up manubrium, which would provide a different uh, resulting measure in the shoulder. Um, and, and so this is how we start to divide the, the, the areas of compression and expansion in the thorax to be associated with certain shoulder measures. So it's just a matter of paying attention over time. Um, the chances of you finding this direct association in the literature is probably slim to none. Um, but again, if you, if you start to pay attention to your measures and you start to look at where these areas of compression and expansion actually occur, um, it's not difficult to make the associations in the shoulder measure. So Zhang, I hope that's, that's helpful for you. Um, I truly appreciate your questions and I will move the skeleton off to the side. All right, question number two. Um, one question I've been wrestling with, uh, this is from Marcos, sorry Marcos. Uh, one question I've been wrestling with is what role does the neck muscles play in exhalation specifically? Does depression of the Adam's apple or recruitment of the muscles in the back of the tongue promote better exhalation mechanics? Um, my guess is that they would promote a better head position. Uh, which affects breathing. So Marcus, what I would say is like, there's not, a, there's not necessarily a better or worse, there's just a what is. And so what we wanna do is we wanna identify um, what strategies are available. And if there's a limitation in strategy, then we would wanna obviously recapture the opposing strategy to maximize movement options. So let's, let's make this rather simple. If you look at the hyoid bone, which is at the, the, the top of your, your throat there, you can actually palpate it and wiggle it around. It's that, that really hard, stiff thing at the top of your airway. And that position of the hyoid bone is gonna be associated with inhalation or exhalation. So as the hyoid drops down, 
the position of the of the airway is actually an inhaled position so it's actually actually big and round um, <clears throat> if you've ever taken a CPR class then you'll know what I'm talking about because the head tilt chin lift actually pulls the hyoid downward and that's what opens up the airway and allows you to access um, the, the airway to the lungs when you're doing CPR in the opposing strategy where the hyoid goes up um, this will be associated with a narrowing of the airway. So it actually compresses the, the airway. This would also be associated with swallowing. So when you swallow, the hyoid goes up and that helps compress the airway. And of course, then you get the, the, the closing of the glottis and, and such when you swallow so you don't choke. But there is an airway shape change that's associated with this. So a traditional forward head posture, which is lower cervical flexion, upper cervical extension, actually has the, the lowered hyoid position which is an open airway, which means I'll have concentric orientation of the musculature below the level of the hyoid, um, which, which again helps promote some of this, this uh, forward head orientation. Um, the opposing strategy, of course, when the hyoid is up is gonna be what we would might refer to as military posture, which is lower cervical extension, upper cervical flexion. And I wanna be able to move between those two strategies. And that would represent my full capabilities of inhalation and exhalation, as well as my full uh, capacity to, to move my, my neck through its full excursion. So again, I, I don't think that we, we wanna look at this as, as one better or worse, we wanna say what is and under certain strategies. So if I'm producing high levels of force, the hyoid will be up because I'm gonna use an exhalation um, uh, propulsive strategy. And so that would actually help me increase the internal pressures and, and help produce force. When I'm looking to access um, eccentric orientation, a little bit more um, broad spectrum movement capabilities, I wanna make sure that I can open my airway at will. So again, hopefully that gives you an idea of what we're actually looking at when we're talking about respiration at the neck. Um, and, and again, you, you'll see these same associations with some of the iterations in the axial skeleton. So the, the, the descended hyoid position will typically be associated with your people that are biased towards an inhalation uh, strategy in the axial skeleton. Your elevated hyoids are probably gonna be biased more towards your people with an exhalation strategy in the axial skeleton. So again, Marcos, I hope that that's helpful for you. If you have any other questions about that, please feel free to ask them. Everybody have a great Tuesday. Again, happy birthday to mom, and I'll see you guys later. All right, we are recording this is thursday morning coffee and discussion i have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect um we also have a a very special guest which is kind of uh these are very casual but i gotta i gotta introduce this guy because he's the coffee guy so dr michael <laughs> is on the call this morning, live from the from the home studio um, yep. and and, uh, uh, and he's been doing uh, i don't know some sort of self-punishment i guess would be the way to do this so concept two they make the rower and ski erg and and uh, they have a bike now they run these challenges throughout the year and uh, so they did one in april called the april fools challenge which was probably aptly named where uh, April 1st, you row 1,000 meters. April 2nd, you row 2,000 meters. April 3rd, 3,000 meters, et cetera, to the 15th, where you row 15,000 meters. And so I actually got my kids to do it. So three of my kids 
And actually my youngest did it. We just did it as a factor of 10 lower. He's five. So he did a hundred meters, 200 meters, 300 meters. But I got my kids to do it. And then they basically were like, well, you do it too, dad, but you have to do double. So I would do a thousand meters on the rower. And then I would do a thousand meters on the ski erg. And it was cool until like day five. And, uh, and days like 10 through 15 were just, because uh, I would generally have to do it like after they would go to bed. So at like 8.30, I would start on the ski erg and then I would row 12,000 meters and I'd go and I'd row the rower. So yesterday was day 15, 15,000 meters on the erg, 15,000 meters on the ski erg, and I'm not gonna row today. Um, I would say it's kind of pushed me towards stuff that I wanted to do before this was happening, right? Like I needed a better presence with online type um, work, right? Shooting videos, content. Um, you didn't really see my face you know, in all my Instagram and Facebook stuff, because I just didn't like doing that stuff. And now I'm videoing in my face every day. And so I, I think I've developed a good comfort with all that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I think for me, one of the coolest things was having to be creative with my workouts and exercises. You know, being here and being quarantined kind of shows you what kind of the raw stuff that you need and forced me to really be creative on how I can use those raw materials to create exercises that were meaningful and intentional. So I had uh, some antique furniture that I got, um, and it just happened to be enough height to put a barbell on and do squats off of. Um, it was also heavy enough to do RDLs on. Um, and then, you know, we tossed in some overhead laundry basket, squats, heels elevated, you know, like you said, man, you get creative. Finding different ways to communicate, even though we can't really be physically there. Mm -hmm. And then aside from that, like also understanding what's essential and what isn't, not only in what we do uh, as practitioners, but what we do in everyday life. I, I, I totally agree. That, that I, th I think that this is, again, it, it's sort of like a forced circumstance, but, but it also allows you to recognize some of those things that, you know what, this is really important, or this is really what I want to do, or it's, yeah. it, there are so many opportunities available right now. And granted, it, I think everybody's feeling the stress. I don't think there's any question about that. So I don't want to negate, you know, the, the, the downside. Absolutely. But, but yeah. looking at this from an opportunistic standpoint, I think is, is really powerful. I want to just introduce and just trying to gain a good network of folks and learn as much as I can about what everybody does and invest my time, which I obviously have now, into gaining knowledge in this realm. What are you doing? What are you doing yourself to, to organize this for yourself so you can- Like so test, can, retest? So you can understand. Um, like physics, like what are you doing to, to capture this information? So like, are you, are you just a note taker? Are you using some kind of system? Are you using some kind of an app? What, do you, what are you doing? There's right gonna be a lot of people that are in your shoes that, that don't understand like the, the best way for them to go about capturing information. Right now, yes, I'm a note taker. Really, I like, yeah, uh, pen and paper. Uh, so that's mostly what I use right now, or I try, to, I try to do it through video. What was that, sorry? Aren't you a little young for pen and paper? Yeah. Can you touch on a little bit um, about narrow infrasternal angles um, and 
you mentioned a few times, I, I may have interpreted this wrong, but um, how the pull of the diaphragm kind of changes or inverts. Now, the way- It doesn't invert. It just descends farther. So you have a, you have a tall, skinny tube instead of a short, fat tube, right? Yeah. And so, so to create the internal pressures that are required for control of position, it has to descend farther to create that pressure, okay? And Good. so people that are narrow are narrow forever till death do us part. So there's nothing you're going to change about that because it is a, it is a structural adaptation. It would be like to, to change somebody from a narrow to something else means that you could, you could manipulate their, their height at will, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. It, you know, I see the way you done. So there's structural things that you can identify. And then you have to train them and you have to say, okay, we're, we're making really, really good progress with this, but we can't make a change with that. So let's emphasize what they're really, really good at. If we're honest with people, we say, we're here to improve your son, daughter, or your whatever athleticism you have. We're here to improve you. So we're going to make you better, but we can't make the comparison between anyone else. Um, I've pictured it as well, too. Just since we're on narrow ISA, narrow ISA is that going to influence the elasticity of the lungs as I mean, obviously the chest wall, but I mean the lungs as well too. Do you feel that structure actually genuinely gets stretched? So compliance changes laterally when, when picturing, when cueing with doing some of the, the uh, respiratory interventions that they think about, you know, from an inhalation perspective above and beyond the, the opening that it needs time for it to open, that you have to kind of go slow to create the lateral expansion, whatever position they're putting them in. Exactly. Or it's kind of like a yes/no question, but if you kind of well, like that. Well, so okay, so let's let's take a let's take a, a step back here for just a second, okay? Um, totally unable to answer yes/no question. Say what? Totally unable to answer yes/no question. <laughs> <laughs> you step off into a box into like a like a depth drop. If you could drop down deeper in space and manage that position, then that was like like a deeper squat. Yeah, for, okay, for, okay. and like then that was a representation of like, <laughs> oh, you managed Golgi tendon inhibition to such a degree that it allowed you to get into that position. Okay, I'm yeah. cool with that. Give me another perspective. Of uh, that would be well, it isn't the only thing that's going on, right? right? So now give me something else. Give me another layer of thought process in regards to what's happening there. So it, it would be eccentric elongation of muscular tissue that would allow that position. It'd be just management of like guts. Give me, give me another layer of a thought process. What else is happening? Bones are bending, bones are changing position. They're warping, yeah. Okay, are there any other connective tissues that are getting loaded? So, so right away, you've given me what, three or four different perspectives as to what's going on. So, so right now, your, your filtering system for what happened on that, on that depth jump is now different. Yeah because you have more perspectives that you've brought into play. Right, okay. So I have, to use, I have to use the observations that I have available to me. I have to be able to measure the things that, that I can measure that are useful. So just being able to measure stuff doesn't make it useful. When we see PNF techniques being used for improving hip flexion, do you think the mechanism of why it's working is less about changing or inhibiting um, you know, tonicity of the hamstrings versus changing like 
counter nutation for where airflow is going. Like, did you get the Why outcome you that you wanted based on your intent? That that's that's step one. Yeah. Okay. Because you just don't. Oh, okay. Know. You just yeah. don't know. It doesn't matter why. Yeah. Well, it's not that it doesn't matter. It just it's like everything matters, and it, and so we have to stop giving extra credit to to certain elements. Mm. The the reality mm. is, is like okay. yeah, is there a neurophysiological? Absolutely, because I I know I've got an active nervous system. I'm assuming this person is still alive and breathing, right? <laughs> Is it is it, yeah. is it is it pressure gradients? Absolutely. Is it is it the viscoelastic yeah. behavior? Absolutely. If I don't create strain on a muscle, I don't produce force. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I can increase range of motion by creating a gradient, but I can't lift anything heavy. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. I actually have to restrict the gradient to lift heavy things. So there's a big difference mm -hmm. right there in, in the ability to access ranges of motion under load. Right? You ever have somebody that can squat really, really deep, but you put a barbell on their back and they can't get past parallel? Happens yeah. all the time. Right? Yeah. Because if they go below parallel, they have to create the gradient that will not allow them to stand back up. So they never go there. It's like people that do half push-ups. The reason they do half push-ups is because mm -hmm. they can't go into that zone in that lower half of the push-up because they'll never get back up. Because the yeah. minute they release pressure, they don't have enough force production anymore because the gradient was designed to access motion, not to produce force. They're not the same. Okay. So basically there's the a, multiple ways that an intervention might be successful and there's multiple interventions that would also be successful, I think is and you another have way to look no at it. Idea. You have no yeah. idea why it worked, right? Yeah. So, so here's how you get better as a practitioner. You do stuff, you pay attention to what happens, and then you do that over a period of years, and then you start to recognize certain behaviors are related to certain interventions. And more often than not, if I do this, I get that, and then you do more of that, and you're still gonna be wrong 26% of the time, but 74% of the time you're gonna be right, and then that's how you get better. So your probabilities get better. It's not that you know what's going to happen, because you don't. I have nothing but the best of intentions. I want to provide the best service I possibly can for every one of my clients. And because of that, I don't always listen to the evidence. It should guide, not dictate, educate, not mandate, direct, not decree, reinforce, not enforce. Right. There you go. Love that. Love that. I think it's brilliant. Your arms look good today. Oh, it's a shirt. It's a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a size too small. Uh, like acute muscle injury. Like how are you, how are you looking at that in regards to like an acute muscle? How, how do you how are you, muscle like a muscle strain? Uh, okay, grade one to two, not not full rupture. We're not talking about tendon rupture, but like legit muscle contractile tissue area or area, yeah. um, muscle belly stuff. How are you looking at that in the management standpoint early on, so like acutely, and how does that like affect the pressure and the ability for the muscle to work? And what are you looking to adjust with that? And so the management strategy is really not not all that that different, right? Um, I want to make sure that I have excursion, right? So when, we, when you think about, okay, what is it going to take for this, this tissue to recover? It needs movement. It needs blood flow. So if I have a restriction in my movement capabilities, that would imply that I have tension, which reduces blood flow. So, so that's why I want to make sure that I'm restoring full excursion of of uh, 
my rotations, right? So full excursion from internal to external rotation, which implies that I have full excursion of breathing, right? Some of your manual strategies, what do they do? They alter the shape of the, of the, the structure, right? The protein structure can change shape and that will allow access to oxygen, nutrients, et cetera, et cetera, that promotes the, the natural healing. And like, you know, that muscle can be in constant orientation versus a muscle being in eccentric orientation prior. Are right. those going to adjust like how that blood flow gets to those areas? Let's, let's just think process. What's, the, what's my intention? What is my goal? What am I trying to achieve, right? I wanna make sure that, that this thing has everything that it needs to, to recover. I don't care what methodologies, I don't care if you stick needles in people, I don't care if you rub them, I don't care if you use an elbow, I don't care if you use a thumb, I don't care if you take a breath, I don't care if you activate a, a, a muscle. Um, the, the goal is to make sure that, that whatever you're, you're um, trying to protect and, and promote the recovery process has the ability to do, to do that. So it, it, it doesn't matter to me what tool you're using, as long as the tool is effective under the circumstance. Um, this was fun. We're gonna, we're, I'm gonna try to keep doing this as much as I can. Um, schedule's gonna go back towards normal starting next week, but, but I'll, I'll try to do this again next week. I, I really enjoy this and I, I hope it's useful for everybody. At least you get to decompress a little bit, you get a little bit of coffee in you, and, and uh, so it's fun for me. Good morning, happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand and perfect as usual. Thank you, Dr. Mike. Uh, I got to talk to Dr. Mike yesterday on the uh, 6 a.m. coffee uh, for coaches and discussion. It was fun, we had a great time. I suggest you uh, join us. We'll try to do it next Thursday. I'm not really sure. Next Thursday's kind of a, a normal week where we're going to be back in the clinic a little bit next week. So it'll be uh, interesting. Anyway, so yeah, a couple questions on the Q&A that, that are somewhat similar. And so I, I thought I would put them together and, and answer them today. And so the first one comes from Thomas. And Thomas uh, makes a reference all the way back to November 3rd uh, in regards to someone that asked a question about reestablishing eccentric orientation. So trying to recapture some, some movement. And he was avoiding uh, activities like uh, deadlifts and bench press in favor of, of chin-ups and, and overhead presses and um, was still using a compressive strategy in an attempt to, to regain movement. And so with, with the bilateral nature of, of such activities, they tend to still be compressive. And so what Thomas wants to know are there variations of exercises like chin-ups and presses um, that you can use to recapture eccentric orientation. Um, then Thomas makes reference to a video that I have posted on YouTube in regard to upper uh, ribcage expansion activities, which is actually a really good reference, Thomas, in, in to answer your, your question. What you're trying to do when you're recapturing motion is you're trying to restore a gradient. So, so high pressures to low pressures, high volumes to low volumes, create the ability to move through space. So if I just squeeze things, so everything is high pressure all around, there is no gradient. If there's no gradient, there's no movement. And so um, when, when people present with these compressive strategies that actually limit their ability to move their extremities, reinforcing that, with heavy bilateral strength training is usually not the solution when you're trying to restore movement capabilities. So rather than driving barbell-based activities 
bilateral symmetrical high force activities, what we wanna to start to do then, if we wanna use any sort of pulling or pushing activities is we start to use the unilateral pressing, unilateral pr pulling concepts. And there, I got a bunch of videos on, on, on those on, on the YouTube, but it doesn't take a whole lot of, of thought process here. What we're gonna to try to do um, when we're emphasizing movement is, is one, we have to think about graded exposures. <clears throat> so, so the greater the force output, the stronger the compressive strategy is gonna to need to be, even if I am unilateral. So I'm gonna start with a, a much lower level of activity that I can breathe through that's going to allow me to access motion and so so we start very very simply um, with with a single arm overhead press a single arm pull down but we're not going to use maximum load we're going to emphasize movement capabilities and we're going to utilize breath then the goal is to increase the force output and be able to maintain movement capabilities through those ranges of motion while I can still create the, the, the pressure gradient. Um, some people will, will have genetic limitations just based on their physical structure as to how much of this they can actually produce, um, which is why you'll see all sorts of really cool stuff in gymnastics because those are people that can really manage gradients under high force strategies. Um, so again, Thomas, the thing that you gotta, you gotta start to recognize is, is what, how can I move? Um, Let's give credit to the kettlebell culture on this one too, by the way. A lot of their activities, um, the unilateral activities, um, are great, are great for reestablishing these gradients, but they tend to be the ground-based stuff, so like the get-ups and the arm bars and, and one-arm presses and then doing things in half-kneeling, split stance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, kettlebell swings, on the other hand, especially if they are um, bilateral, um, are restrictive, so let's not, let's not say that all kettlebell things are, are supportive of our goal. Okay, so again, we, we always have to think about the same strategy. We're trying to create gradients. And so, so always emphasize that when you're trying to recapture eccentric orientation and ranges of motion. Okay, second question, kind of on the same, same page because we're, we're still talking push-ups and pull-ups here. But uh, uh, Sham asks, um, can you talk about the power push-up rotating handles and how one can buy a shoulder internal external rotation improvements also would be similar using rings for pull-ups and how would you manipulate breathing for supination external rotation and pronation internal rotation to get expansion and shoulder shoulder changes okay so so now we got to start thinking about um, being able to move through a fixed point okay so if I put my hand on the ground um, which is which is relatively stable, right? So I have a stable fixed point that, that I can access. Um, I don't have to produce the fixed point myself. The ground is very fixed. This is going to allow typically, typically under under most circumstances, a greater amount of relative motion. And so so what relative motion is is the ability for for segments of the body to move in opposition. To do this, again, we have to have the pressure gradient available to us or it doesn't happen. And so under under many circumstances, using the ground as the fixed point is a great place to start people. So this is your your quadruped positions. These are our, our ground-based activities, crawling, rolling, etc., etc., where we have this, this fixed point that we can move the body around. Now, there's certain cases where people just don't lack the, the force capabilities, and so they will use a high compressive concentric strategy, just like they would for bilateral symmetrical activities 
with, with a barbell um, because they have to try to control their body in space. So that just means that we need to make these activities easier. So take them from quadruped and then you start to lay them down. You lay them on their sides. And then again, we go back to, to sort of rolling activities as, as one of those elements that might be useful in these circumstances. When we talk about moving the fixed point, so rotating handles or, or suspension trainers um, th that demand that we create the fixed point, um, in many cases, when those are introduced, we will see these, these high pressure concentric strategies return because step one, we gotta create the fixed point, then we have to be concerned about, about moving. And so again, we're looking at graded exposures here. And so moving somebody to a suspended form of an activity, so, so moving from a, a uh, bar-based chin-up versus a ring-based chin-up, demands more control. So you're gonna see more concentric orientation. This immediately increases the perceived difficulty of the exercise because now, because I'm creating a fixed point and I have to produce the, the muscular effort of force to create whatever the movement demands are of that exercise, I have just increased my my output. And again, so it makes things seem harder. So, so again, we can raise the perceptual level of difficulty um, merely by putting somebody in, in a suspended environment, that's not necessarily the goal. Now, over time, what we would hope is, is they learn to create the fixed point and learn how to create the gradients over time. So once again, we go back to the gymnastics example, which is a fabulous representation of somebody that, that can create the fixed point and they can move pressures because some of the stuff that, that, that they are capable of doing is remarkable. It doesn't make them the best movers in the world, it just means that they're really, really good at certain things. Um, so again, we have to look at the, what is the goal here. If we're trying to recapture eccentric orientations and movement, we have to put people in the environments where they are most successful and then slowly grade the, the difficulty and the, and the level of effort and make sure that they're demonstrating those things that we want them to demonstrate. So if the goal is to lock people up, mummify them, restrict movement, then we can immediately jump to some of these activities because they, they will immediately constrain the system into a much more fixed position. If our goal is to restore movement, then we may need to reduce those demands, the, the demands of, of instability, if you will, and put them in a position where they're much more successful, where they can move successfully and create those gradients. So hopefully guys, that answers your questions. Sham and uh, Thomas, I, I truly appreciate you guys asking those. Everybody have a great day, happy Friday. Um, uh, I hope you guys have lead into a great weekend. Keep doing great work. Hang in there, and we'll talk to you next week.